Years ago, I got into a rather heated classroom debate in seminary. The class was on preaching. And someone in the class made the statement that we needed to just be preaching positive sermons. We needed to move away from negativity. Uh, now, I know what was meant. A lot of my fellow classmates said amen to the statement. And I know they were reacting because for a very long time uh, in Baptist life and many others, and you will still find it today, there seemed to be preachers who thought Jesus said, if you love me, beat my sheep. And so they were saying, we've got to get away from that. Now, several in my class were not ready to accept a blanket statement of no negative preaching. We had a much different look at this. For me and others, uh, this would have meant that we would have to totally ignore large portions of Scripture. If I held to this concept that all I can ever do is preach a sermon that will make you feel good, make you feel positive, then I couldn't, I could never address the Ten Commandments, could I? Folks, every one of them are found in the, the form of thou shall not. If I said I could never preach anything unless it was positive and uplifting, then I would have to ignore almost everything that the prophets had to say. Now, in all of the prophets, there are words of hope, but there are very many words of doom. Folks, into the New Testament, I could not address the second or third chapters of the book of Revelation, where seven churches are spoken to by Christ, and only two of them have glowing reports. So, for me and others, the full counsel of God meant I had to be willing to look at passages of Scripture that may not be feel-good, that may not have positive feelings. Now, after about 40 minutes, the professor just smiled. I'm not, I don't remember everything that got us into the discussion, but I think he enjoyed watching us go back and forth. He smiled and said, okay, the debate's over, and we had to go back to note-taking. That was almost 40 years ago. And folks, I still believe that I was right. I still believe that my side of the debate was true. We cannot just preach fun stuff. The passages in Scripture that are strong and hard are not meant to harm us. It's not about negativity. Those passages are God calling to the hearts of his people and calling to them, move away from the paths you have followed. Move away from straying from me. Come back to where you need to be. And we need those truths. Folks, they are using the words or the terms of the prodigal son. God gives us those passages so that we will come to our senses. And we will make our way back to God. So, in light of the situation we find ourselves in today, we need to take a long, hard look at ourselves. You have 
heard me reference the idea of awakening throughout the 12 years, almost 12 years I've been with you. But you've heard it a lot this last year and a half. The book of Habakkuk was all about God's people getting right with him. Moving into 1 John, we found John saying, you need to follow God and obey him. For the last few weeks, a couple of months in your bulletins, there have been statements about awakening by a variety of different ministers of God's word. When we come to a place, I, I referenced a book by Lewis Drummond, The Awakening That Must Come. And that gives us the title of the series we're about to launch into. Because I believe the only thing that will turn this nation around, I believe the only thing that can see us find ourselves living the way God wants is if the church, the body of Christ, is awakened from a slumber that we've been in for a very long time. Folks, some of those words about awakening I gave you in your bulletins came from the 1950s and the 60s when everybody thought everything was great with the church. But there were those who saw problems and burdens and said, we need to come back to God. Over the next quarter, we're going to be taking a look at the concept of awakening. We're going to take a look at where we are. We're going to take a look at passages that will tell us what needs to happen to get us where we need to be. And I will warn you, they are not particularly bubbly passages. But we need to hear them. We need to hear these passages. If we seriously want to see the hand of God move today, if we want to see our land, the church in our land, become what she is meant, then we need to hear the admonition of the prophet Hosea. In, the, uh, in his book, the 10th chapter, verse 12, he, came, he gave us one of the most powerful images of what needs to happen to your hearts and my heart. He said, sow righteousness for yourself and reap faithful love. Break up your unplowed ground. It is time to seek the Lord until he comes and sends righteousness on you like the rain. Unplowed ground. If a plot of land has gone unused for decades and decades, it's like concrete. And you can't get a seed into it. And you have to break it up. And that's a lot of work. And Hosea was saying, that's where your hearts are, Israel. They're unplowed. You've not let God in in a long time. And we need to break it up. Now, to begin our journey today, we're going to take a look. And Angel already alluded to the idea of a cycle. And it is a disturbing cycle. And it is a cycle that is found throughout the book of Judges. Now, I'm pretty sure that the image that is on your screen right now may not be terribly pleasing to your eye to see that cycle over and over again. It is a disturbing cycle. And we're going to hear about it in Judges 2, verses 10 through 19. And I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible today, and I want you to hear very carefully the word of the Lord. That whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors. I'm going to stop right there and explain that. Chapter 2, verse 10 picks up after Joshua's death and after the death of the generation of leaders that followed him. Joshua clearly 
on his last speech before Israel, said, you need to choose whom you will serve. And the generation that followed him followed the path that God wanted them to follow. This is now the third generation that we'll be talking about, the third generation in Canaan. And the generation that was gathered to their ancestors were the godly, still following God. Now listen what happens. After them, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They worshipped the Baals and abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed other gods from the surrounding peoples and bowed down to them. They angered the Lord, for they abandoned him and worshipped Baal and the Ashtoreths. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he handed them over to marauders who raided them. He sold them to the enemies around them, and they could no longer resist their enemies. Whenever the Israelites went out, the Lord was against them and brought disaster on them. Just as he had promised and sworn to them, so they suffered greatly. The Lord raised up judges who saved them from the power of their marauders, but they did not listen to their judges. Instead, they prostituted themselves and with other gods, bowing down to them. They quickly turned from the way of their ancestors who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. They did not do as their ancestors did. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for the Israelites, the Lord was with him and saved the people from the power of their enemies while the judge was alive, still alive. The Lord was moved to pity whenever they groaned because of those who were oppressing and afflicting them. Whenever the judge died, the Israelites would act even more corruptly than their ancestors, following other gods to serve them and bow in worship to them. They did not turn from their evil practices or their obstinate ways. In our text, the writer of Judges, many believe to be Samuel. The writer of the Judges pointed out that the people of Israel entered into a terrible cycle that would plague them for hundreds of years. It lasted throughout the entire time of the Judges, and that's estimated to be somewhere between 350 to 400 years. And then the same cycle would come back to them over and over again even during the time of the kings that keep on going through the cycle. Now, I'm going to I'm going to give you what that cycle was and folks, this is the book of Judges in one passage of scripture. The rest of it just fleshes out. At some point in time, verses 11 through 13, we're told that they entered into sin. And the sin was specific. They turned their back on God and they followed other gods. Well, God not being willing to let his people go, chose to discipline them. And they came into a time of slavery. Verses 14 and 15 focus in that God actually handed them over to the raiders, that God actually sold them into the hands of their enemies. And they found out 
when they went out to do battle, remember when Joshua led them and they were following God? God fought for them and they won. But now every time they go out, God is not only not fighting for them, he is fighting against them so that they will come back. And somewhere along the line, there was part of supplication, prayer. Now, it is only implied in our text, since this is a broad statement. And it's implied in verse 18 by that word groaned. That's why I'm writing, reading from the Christian Standard, one of the reasons. Uh, not every English translation focuses on that word. When they groaned, God heard and responded and sent a, a judge, and the people were saved. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Judges, get out of your head the idea of gavel in hand, order in the court, the judge is going to make a ruling. The judges in this book are not judges in that sense. They are leaders. They are military figures that God raises up to drive out the enemy. And everything's good, and everything's wonderful, until the judge dies. And then verse 19 says, it starts all over again. Only please notice, it's worse. This is not just a cycle, it's a downward spiral. They keep getting further away from God. This is the book of Judges. And this cycle seems a little more familiar than we would like, doesn't it? We need to understand that the cycle can plague us as well. Followers of Christ, we can find ourselves in that never-ending cycle over and over again in our lives. But I'm here to tell you that I believe we can have victory over it. We can break the cycle, not in our own strength, but in the power of the Lord. As God moves in us and we learn to yield ourselves more to his control, we can begin to see more and more victory instead of ever-increasing defeat. Now, how does that happen? That last phrase, descriptive of Israel, was obstinate. I like that word because it sounds so much more thorough than just stubborn. This is stubborn to the nth degree. They refuse to hear. How can we break it? By listening to the lessons Israel refused to learn. And so let's begin. Let us look carefully at the cause of stumbling. The very first thing that you and I need to do is be absolutely clear. When we fall, we need to know what happened. When we get out of the will of God, when we stumble into a sin, when we do our own thing, we need to understand what's happening. And what was happening with Israel, the writer of Judges said, a new generation of Israel failed to acknowledge God. The text reads, they did not know him. They did not know the works that he had done on their behalf. Now, it's very clear. If you are a student of the Old Testament at all, you will know paganism was always lurking in the background with Israel. How do I know that? Because the very first God, command God gives them you will have no other gods before me. And folks, that lets us know Israel believed there were other gods. Israel believed that there were a lot of gods out there, and God said, you're going to have to follow me 
and me alone. I'm the one that delivered you out of Egypt. You need to follow me. And we find a problem with idolatry throughout Israel's history until after the Babylonian captivity, hundreds and hundreds of years after they entered into Canaan, they go into Babylon for 70 years. When they come back, Israel finally has put away their idols. So it was a problem. Now, there are two possibilities that will explain how this generation did not know the Lord or his works. They did not share the faith of their fathers. They did not share the memory. Now, there are two possibilities. One, the former generation failed its job. The leaders that followed God somehow failed to teach. And remember, Moses told Israel in Deuteronomy, you need to be talking about these laws all the time. When you're getting up, when you're laying down, you need to be speaking about them. And you're going in and you're coming out. All of these things. Now, it's possible that that generation just didn't do their job. But I want to call your attention to something in our text. Or better yet, something that is not in our text. Did you notice that the writer of Judges did not condemn the former generation for not teaching? There is nothing in this passage that suggests that generation did not tell the other generation. So how is it they didn't know? Well, I think the other explanation is we need to look at the word know. To know. Now, it can mean the knowledge of a fact. It can mean knowing something by experience. I want to read for you the New Living Translation's treatment of this verse. Another generation grew up, this is verse 10, who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. That word acknowledge is a viable translation for the word to know. And it carries a stronger sense. This isn't that these people did not know the facts about God. They didn't acknowledge him, which compounds their guilt. Because they probably did hear the facts. They just didn't want to listen. They chose to ignore. They chose to not care about what God wanted. They wanted to do what they did, wanted. So they didn't acknowledge a place of God in their lives, and they chose to put all of those stories back behind them. See, they hadn't gone through the wilderness wandering. They had never tasted manna. They hadn't seen all the wonderful miracles. So they just said, we don't have to pay attention to that. They did not want to follow God. And that's the problem. And that seems much more in character with the entire book of Judges. The fact that they keep going through the same cycle, they just don't want God. Now, I would ask for a show of hands, but I would expect if everybody's honest, every hand should go up. If I asked you how many of you have ever ignored something that your parents said, You don't have to, but I'll raise my hand. And I will tell you, 99.9999% of the time, it didn't work out well. These people have chosen not to follow God. And and forgetting God by putting Him in the back of their lives, saying we aren't going to follow Him, we don't want Him, they found themselves going into a cycle 
that they did not break out of. And what does this tell you and me? What does this have to say to us? Losing sight of God is disastrous. When we lose sight of who God is, we're in trouble. We're going to fall away. We're going to move away from His will, from His fellowship. He'll keep loving us, but we will be out of His will. Mike Iaconelli in the Wittenberg Door talks about something that I became familiar with. I, I was a city kid. My dad was in the Air Force. I never lived in the country. I visited the country, but I never lived in the country until God put me smack dab in a church that was country. Now, my sister-in-law, who lived five miles from her nearest neighbor, said I wasn't in country. My my response was, I have cows behind my house. I have skunks running in the front yard. I'm in the country. I know what Iaconelli was talking about. He said where he lived were a lot of ranches, and there were a lot of cows. And inevitably, folks, whenever you have a lot of cows, Inevitably, a cow gets out. A cow gets lost. And he said, if you ask a rancher how that happens, he'll probably tell you by nibbling. And basically, a cow, maybe a step up in intelligence from sheep, but not much. A a cow sees a nice green patch of grass and eats it, and then looks up and there's another patch, and it goes to that one, and then it goes to the next. It's getting some good grass, and it keeps going on and on and on. And then all of a sudden, remember that expression, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence? This is where it comes from. Because the cow gets to a hole in the fence, here's this nice green tuft of grass, and she eats it and then looks through the hole and more green grass. And she walks through and nibbles and nibbles and nibbles. I will also tell you from my experience while living in the country, often cows will get lost together by nibbling. One cow will lead the others right through that hole in the fence. Their influence, terrible. Now he brings it down for us. Most people do not get up. Most people who say, I follow God, do not wake up one morning and say, today is a day I start backsliding. Today is the day I'm going to walk out of the will of God. That's not the way we work. Typically what happens, we begin nibbling. We see something that's attractive. We see something we want. We see something we think we need. And we take it. And then we go a little bit further and a little bit further until we are like the prodigal son. We're off in the far country. And we're trying to figure out, how did I get here? What happened to me and and what is it going to take for me to get back where God wants me to be? But unfortunately, when the in the parable of the prodigal son, when he comes to his senses, he says, I need to get back home. I'll be a servant to my father, but I need to get back home. Sometimes when we fail, sometimes when we stumble, our shame holds us back from coming home to God. We don't want to admit it, which is rather foolish. God knows what we've done. When we confess our sins, we don't surprise Him. But somehow we just want to pretend everything's okay. So we may keep coming to church. We may keep going through motions. But we find ourselves farther and farther from God because we need to come home. 
I don't know who originally said this, but I love this statement. If you feel like God is on the far side of the universe, who moved? And it's us. And I believe with everything in me, our hearts must constantly and consciously be renewed in relation to God. The great Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, they they had an idea and a concept that was powerful. And they said the church must always be in a state of reformation. And what that meant was they knew that the church would stumble and fall. They knew the church would move away from the truth. And all churches, all people must keep coming back to those foundational statements. And this is true. I can show you in the Scripture and I can show you in our own nation's history. May I remind you, there was a first awakening. There was a second awakening. There was a great revival in the 19th century. And then the 20th century, no really humongous awakening that changed society. Why is there a first, second, and third awakening? Because the people of God got close and somehow lost sight of God. And God in His grace and His mercy kept waking us up, kept moving among us. Folks, we need to understand, if I'm out of the will of God, it's my fault. I have wandered away. And if the body of Christ is not functioning as the way she should, if we have forgotten our primary objective in this world, serving our God and being His witnesses in this world, if we lose sight of that, we get in the cycle. So we need to move on to the second lesson, which Israel again refused to hear. Let us examine the effects of stumbling. Let's take a look at what happens to us when we get out of the will of God. What happens to God's people when they stumble? Well, for Israel, it's very clear. The writer Judges just makes a statement that is irrefutable. It's right there. He let us know that Israel turned to other gods to fill the void of a forgotten God. When they entered into the land and they settled down as a generation, they are now in the third generation in Canaan. They're looking around them. They've chosen to ignore God. And so they are in a land that had its own God had its own rituals. Now, there is evidence that Israel may have at least bowed down to some of the ritual of Israel, but they lost the meeting. They abandoned their hearts before God. They were enthralled by the Baals in Canaan, the Baalim in the, in the text, the original text. You see the word Baal? It can mean Lord, it can mean Master, it can even mean Husband. It's more of a title than a name. And if you looked at the fertile crescent from Egypt in the west all the way to Babylon in the east, hundreds and hundreds of gods were called Baal. Most of them were fertility gods. And the major god in Canaan, the Baal there, was a god of thunder and fertility. And the people are looking 
They don't want to follow God's rules and regulations. They don't want to go through all the rigmarole. So they're looking for another way, and they're looking and thinking, you know what? These people, these Canaanites, they get plenty of rain. They have good produce. They're getting along pretty good. The Baals and Asterisks, those are the consorts, the female equivalent of Baal, they're treating these people right. Maybe we can worship them. Now, I'm not going to get into a great deal of detail, but I will tell you, though the worship of fertility gods always involves immoral behavior. Always. And so that appeals to the very basis side of humanity, that the absolutely lowest common denominator, we are ruled by our lusts and our desires. And so that appealed to them perhaps even more. So they turned their back on Yahweh and they worshiped the gods of Canaan. Centuries after this, Jeremiah the prophet will speak to the condition of Judah in his day. And in one of the most frustrating passages in Jeremiah, the Lord speaks to his prophet and says, cross over to the coast of Cyprus and take a look. Send someone to Kedar and consider carefully. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever exchanged its gods? Yet my people have exchanged their glory for useless idols. Be appalled for this, heavens. Be shocked and utterly desolated. This is the Lord's declaration. For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. He's talking, Cyprus and Kedar are pagan nations. They say, these pagan nations don't go switching gods willy-nilly, but Israel does. And it has happened in her past. And they turn from the God who can give life to God's with a little g that can offer nothing. And this is where it really begins in Israel. Because they forgot something very important. In those Ten Commands, when God says you can't make an idol for yourself, in Exodus 20, He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. When they turned their back on Yahweh, these people committed spiritual adultery. Now remember, the name Baal Baal can mean husband. Israel was meant to be the bride of God. And God said, I am jealous. I don't think of some human being just, you know, freaking out, jealous in a bad sense. He's saying, I'm not going to share you with anyone. I'm not going to give you over to any God you want. And Israel forgets that. And so instead of following God, they entered into what the Word of God says, a prostitution of their lives to other gods. Again, not a nice image. They refuse to acknowledge God and they sink deeper and deeper into this sin as these false gods begin to move upon them. Now Israel finally came to a place of understanding 
All the idols, all the false gods were false. They didn't exist. They weren't real. There was only one true God and his, his name was Yahweh. But they turned their back on him. And someone has said, when you lose sight of God's grace, you lose sight of God. And you lose any sense of obligation. When we forget, we are saved by amazing grace. We can walk away from God without thinking much about it. Their abandonment of the Lord brought anger from God. And we're told that His anger burns pretty fiercely. It says His anger burned. It literally means His nose burned. A, a statement, an image to show real divine fury. Now, we don't like passages like this. We don't want to think about God getting angry. We want Him to just love us and be sweet. But God is a, a passionate God, and He will not allow other gods into His children's lives and just forget about it. He will not allow His children to commit spiritual adultery. And His anger toward Israel is expressed in two statements. He handed them over to marauders who raided them. He sold them to the enemies around them. And they had to come to an understanding. God is moving against us. Centuries later, the writer of Hebrews makes one of the most frightening statements in Scripture. Hebrews 10.31 It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that's where Israel was. Now how does that relate to us as the church today? If we really are in need of awakening, what do we need to learn from this? Well, we will serve something. We will serve something. And we've pledged our lives to God. We have confessed Christ as the risen Savior and Lord. But when we begin to yield ourselves to what we want, we begin to lose sight of God. We will serve something. And I'm convinced, I, I'm pretty certain I can say this, I'm pretty certain if I were to do a pop-in visit with any of your houses, you're not going to have a statue of Baal that you burn incense to. No. Because in our world, we carry our idols around with us everywhere we go. Because I can convince the idols we worship are ourselves. We take what we want. And each time we choose what we want, as opposed to what God wants for us, it's idolatry. Every time we yield ourselves to those base desires or even good desires, we are becoming idolatrous. And disobedience is idolatry. Because when I disobey my Father, I'm saying I know best. I know what's good for me. We're saying I love my sin more than God. I love my way more than God. Charles Spurgeon, a great Baptist preacher from the 1800s in London, said, we are all idolaters. I say we are idolaters by nature, all of us. And I think we can say amen. Not, not, well, not amen. Let's say, oh, woe me. 
Uh, we can acknowledge this is true. Just look at the human race. And if that is true, then what that means, folks, is anything in your life that takes precedent over God becomes your idol. That can be a person. And I know I'm about to get in trouble. But it can be your family. Because sometimes family becomes more important than God in our lives. It can be your career. Because you give your life and your heart and everything in you over to that career. It can be your possessions. Whatever happens that puts something besides God first in your life is what you're serving. And because we have this bent, this tendency to exalt ourselves and our wants and wishes above that of God, there's probably not a Christian in this room who could honestly say, I have never practiced idolatry. If we understand putting anything first, So what has to happen? It can be anything, folks, that takes precedent over God, even good things. And I believe the only way out of this cycle is only a vital connection to the true God will fill our hearts with meaning, will calm that which we're looking for, will bring purpose into our existence, will help us find why we were created and why we were redeemed. It has to be a vital connection with God. If we put anything else above Him, we're in trouble. Now, I've shared a lot with you about Rachel, um, my bride of 32 years. We started dating in high school, and on our second date, I asked Rachel, how many children she wanted. A week later, she said, I think we need to be friends. And I was heartbreaking because I was, I fell head over heels in love with her. I knew I was supposed to marry her. But something was happening to me that I didn't acknowledge. She was becoming more important to me than God. I had already surrendered to ministry. And you know what I was looking forward to when I went to church? Rachel. Do you know what I was looking forward to at our weekly prayer meetings in the youth group? Sitting next to Rachel where I could hold her hand after prayer. She was becoming first. And I think God let my tongue slip and say something really stupid on a second date. It scared her. A 15-year-old boy should not be asking a 16-year-old girl how many kids she wants once we're married. It scared her. She pulled back. And for six months, we were broken up. And I was miserable. And finally, my youth director, Gwen Lemoyne Farquhar, how's that for a name? He brought me aside, looked me in the eye, the only human being I would listen to, to say these words, Danny, you're making a fool of yourself. You've let Rachel become more important than God. And I knew he was right, and I repented. And I turned out right, didn't I? I like to tell, especially when she were around, I like to say, she came to her senses. 
figure out what she was about to lose. But the reality is God made it. She had to be in the right position in my life and it would always be behind God. We must allow ourselves never to forget God, never to remember He is Lord, He is Master, not some Baal. When we put Him first, we can start breaking away from the cycle. Well, we have one last lesson to learn that again Israel didn't pay attention to. So, you and me, let us fully embrace the solution to the stumbling. Let's figure out how do we break the chain? What is the solution? And Israel just didn't get it. Even though throughout the book of Judges, God keeps rescuing her, bringing her back, she keeps on the cycle. Israel refused to see that a continuing walk with God was her only hope. It was her only hope out of this cycle. She just wouldn't see it. And I want you to see the amazing, outstanding, wonderful, stupendous God we serve. Listen to verse 18 again. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for the Israelites, the Lord was with him and saved the people from the power of their enemies while the judge was still alive. The Lord was moved to pity whenever they groaned because of those who were oppressing them and afflicting them. The judges that God sent were representatives of his presence. And even though God delivered his people in the hands of these judges, He delivered them from the people He had sold them to to the people He had delivered them to. His decision to restore them wasn't based on their just being a great group of people. The motive for God rescuing Israel was not that they got down and they prayed beautiful prayers His motive was his love for them. You get the sense of God's heart breaking over his children and him saying, I'm not going to abandon them. He kept reaching out over and over again. I've said it before and I will say it more than once. Aren't you glad God's not like us? I know people, you make one mistake, you are off their list forever and ever. There's no way back. God continued to reach out, even though the text goes on to tell us when the judge died, they were worse than before, becoming even more corrupt. They had fallen into a process of what several Biblical scholars have called Canaanization. They were becoming Canaan. And we need to know that God's grace was reaching out to them and giving them an opportunity to come back completely and fully. 
and they still refuse to follow. So, you and I, we must see God as more than a temporary fix for our problems. We've got to see God is more than the one we come and say, get me out of this mess. Someone has used a, a pretty interesting look or image for God. They said that God, Christians seem to look upon God as a kind of spare tire. Now let me fill that, fill that out some. When you buy a car, you make certain there's a spare tire there. And then you forget about it, don't you? Most of you. Now I know there are some of you who are highly mechanically inclined and you're going to check that spare tire periodically to make sure it has air. But most of the real world world forgets it. We don't think about it. Even though we're told, that's one of those things we're told, and oh, I don't need to listen to that. And we forget about it, and the only time we think about a spare tire is when? We need it. We have a flat, and so we pull it out, and under our breath we are praying, please let there be enough air. Please let there be enough For a lot of us, that's when we come to God. When things are going well, and folks, for a large portion of the 20th centuries, things went really well for Christians in America. In the 50s, we began to see booms in church. Into the 60s, we saw a great religious sense in our land. And even into the 70s, even into the 80s, not everybody believed in Christ. Not everybody trusted Him. That, that's naive to think so. But a large portion of our culture said, it's probably a good thing that you belong to a church. It's probably not a bad idea if you go. But things were fairly easy on us. And so we got caught up in a lot of issues that led us away from our primary purpose. And our primary purpose is to glorify God, enjoy Him forever, to be witnesses for Christ. And we started hiring professionals to do that. That's the preacher's job. That's the deacon's job. That's somebody else's. And we started moving away from what was at one time in our country a vital sense, I want to serve God, at least during the awakening. Well, folks, God isn't content to be our stopgap. God is not content. Now, I'm not saying He won't come and help us. Because He tells us to bring our troubles to Him. But that is not what God wants from us. He doesn't want us just coming to Him when we got a flat. Several years back, pretty good amount of time ago, I shared with you a little poetic now, now, don't look for rhyming poetry. But a little thing written by Wilbur Rees. And I want to share the whole thing with you today. Because I fear this is where many of the people who wear the name of Christ are in the 21st century. Why we are where we are. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or 
to pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. No, no, not the flesh and blood one. He will keep me from an appointment with the hairdresser, make me late for the cocktail party. He will soil my linen and break my strand of matched pearls. I can't put up with pundits from Persia or sweaty shepherds trampling over my nylon carpet with their muddy feet. My name isn't Mary, you know. I want no living, breathing Christ, but one I can keep in its crib with a rubber band. That plastic one will do just fine. I would like to buy $3 worth of God. I don't want to be a fanatic. But if I didn't get in trouble earlier, I'll get in trouble now. But we don't mind being fans for the New Orleans Saints. And guess where the word fan comes from? I don't want to be a fanatic. I don't want to be one of those crazy people who just think about God all the time. And God is saying, why not? Open your heart to me. God is calling for us return. We need to answer Christ's question, will we? And I believe awakening is close when we take a serious turn to following God's mercy. When we really begin to understand He has forgiven, He has given us grace, He has called us to His side, and we need to follow Him. See, McCartney, 73, something years ago, said there's a major difference between an airplane and every other mode of transportation. Now, keep in mind, he was talking about airplanes 70-plus years ago. Don't try to think of any new fancy stuff out there. He said every other form of locomotion can stop and go backwards and be okay. A a plane has no brakes. If it stops in midair, It has no reverse. If it simply stops, it's going to crash. It must continue its forward motion, its upward motion to be safe. And folks, we need to keep moving forward. We must take seriously a call to hear God, to repent of our errant ways, to to move forward and upward if we want to see change. If we want to break the cycle. If we want to break the cycle, and that only happens as we respond to God's grace and mercy and yield ourselves to Him. We need to turn to Him. You see, saying we want awakening is not enough. Because I can ask a question At the first of every sermon in this series, how many of you want to see an awakening? And many of you will raise your hands because you know you're supposed to. It's not enough to say, I want to see an awakening. As a people of God in our land, we need to take a long, hard look at how we have stumbled in the 20th century going into the 21st. We must understand that we 
have stumbled. We chose to lose sight of God. We need to understand that the effects of losing sight of God has brought us to a place of weakness, has brought us to a place of failure. And we need to seriously take the truth that only God Himself is the solution. So today, let's quit making excuses. Let's quit offering rationalizations that explain away how we've gotten further and further away from God's calling. Let's begin the process of opening our eyes. We sing a chorus, open our eyes, Lord, we want to see Jesus. Let's pray, Lord, open our eyes, we need to see ourselves. Let's ask God, to move in us and break the cycle that has plagued us as a people over the last few decades. You and I cannot make a decision for every child of God. I'm praying for our nation. I'm praying for the church. I'm asking God to move among his people all across this land, all across this world. But I can't change anyone. I can't make a decision for anyone but Danny. So we can make a commitment for ourselves. And I'm asking you today, would you join me in a commitment? Yes, you heard me. Would you join me in a commitment? We will not treat God as our emergency fixer anymore. He's not our spare tire. He's our Father, and when He helps us, He helps us because He's our Father and He loves us. Will you commit yourself and will I commit myself today to the solution? God, we need you to change us. We need you to get us moving forward again. Forgive us when we've gotten our eyes off of you and call us to faithful.